Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Do you remember the olden days when you were expected to say please and thank you and I'm sorry? Remember how we used to be expected to tell the truth? Remember tough love, how people told you how it was, and it was difficult at the moment, but looking back you realize that they were right. Remember how we all knew that real was real and fake was fake? Well, I think I can speak for all of us when I say, thank goodness those days are gone forever. Enough of that garbage. We're now living in the land of the new socially acceptable. And it is glorious. On today's episode, we'll be so kind it could kill. Then we'll get run down and run over by squeaky wheels. And finally, you say forgive and forget. I say forget about forgiving. So, grab me a big old bowl of judgment-free buttery popcorn, some Mountain Dew, Swiss cake rolls, meat and cheese trays, some ice cream, trail mix, sack of Snickers, and if you'd like something, get something for yourself, too. Get out your tub of grease, fold those arms in defiance, because here we go. Oh, man, we've got a good one here. Sometimes you just strike gold on these articles. Now look, this one may offend you, or more accurately... My take on this may offend you, but if it does, well, you're exactly who I'm talking to. We live in a world today where everyone is offended by everything. You can't mention ethnic stereotypes, you can't mention names, you can't mention blemishes, you can't mention anything, and add to that list fatness, or obesity, or huskiness, or roundness, I don't know. I'm really not sure what to call it anymore. We're living in a world where everything is taboo, nothing is funny, nothing is... Nothing is abnormal anymore, where there is no more wrong, there just is. And no matter what you is, you is perfect, and should never change. Unless you want to change, and even then, you might be wrong in doing that, as in, you may cause offense to others by trying to change yourself in any way. With regard to weight, we've had various celebrities shamed and slammed for losing weight, trying to improve their health, or anything else that changes them from exactly who they are right at this very moment. Case in point, found on Scientific American, headline, Anti-Fatness in the Surgical Setting. Okay, so first, let's take a look at the uh, bitter fatty that wrote this article, shall we? Ashley Andrew, whose size is akin to a, uh, oh, <laughs> no, wait, no, from what I can find, she appears to be tall and quite thin. And from her about info on uh, aljazeera.com, yeah. She's a Canadian, a medical student at Georgetown, taking the Health Justice Scholar Tract. She earned her Master's of Public Health in Health Policy from Yale. She was a Global Health Justice Scholar at Yale Law, focusing her research on the role of gender in FDA approvals and the effects of policing hypervigilance and heightened cortisol levels on black American men's health outcomes. If you know what that means, <clears throat> send me a send me a note. 
She's also worked with the UN, something to do with HIV and AIDS. She also investigated the linkages between gender, sexuality, and the right to health. And after she gets this latest degree to add to her repertoire, she plans on heading into psychiatry next. She wants to focus on reproductive psychiatry and provide gender-affirming mental health care. Bottom line, all summed up and boiled down, she's Looney Tunes. She's 20 pounds of woke and a 10-pound sack. She's nuts. So this article will be great. I'm, I'm sure of it. So she starts her lament over anti-fatness, which isn't even a real word, with a story about a hefty woman who finally came in to get a hernia repair. The hernia was estimated to be 30 centimeters by 20 centimeters, or for us normal people in America, about 12 inches by 8 inches, with the large intestine protruding through the hernia. After the woman was sedated, Ms. Andrews said the discussion was focused on how she could possibly allow the hernia to get that large, and how her BMI was as high as it was. And her BMI was 41. Now, to give myself some scope of what that would mean, and hopefully you as well, I'm about 5'8", and refuse to admit any shorter. For now. The fattest I've ever been was 220 pounds. At 220 pounds, I had a BMI of 33.4. I felt fat. I didn't look huge, but I definitely was overweight, or as the chart says, obese. I found it harder to sleep on my back, and I felt my heart working harder. I'll be honest, my size wasn't extreme simply because I have a bit more muscle mass than average, but it was extreme for me. Incidentally, that's the failure of the BMI calculations. It's a simple height-weight ratio. For me to get to normal... I'd be emaciated. Even my doc said that he would never want me to get into the normal range per the BMI scale. He set my low limit at the split between normal and overweight. Anyway, for me to get to a BMI of 41, I would have to be about 270 pounds. I literally can't imagine adding 50 more pounds onto my frame from my fattest point. So let's agree that this woman with the hernia and a BMI of 41, that was a big gal. Not my 600-pound life large, but plenty large, too big, unhealthily large, but not according to Ms. Andrew. Turns out Ms. Andrew knows, without actually asking, this is all assumption on her part, that the patient waited so long for her surgery because the medical system looked at her in a derogatory way, and that would be hard to deal with. She goes on to say that, quote, anti-fatness is socially ingrained and virtually inescapable. Pop culture idolizes thinness. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention created an alarmist obesity epidemic based on exaggerated data that haven't held up. Like everyone else in society who is socially conditioned to this bias, clinicians are not exempt from harboring anti-fatness. In a recent study, 24% of physicians stated they were uncomfortable having friends in larger bodies and 18% admitted they felt disgusted when treating a patient with a high BMI. This is upsetting, yet unsurprising, considering that few programs actively train healthcare providers against this cognitive bias. Okay, so first of all, the CDC, who I have zero love for, did get their sums wrong when they said that obesity would overtake tobacco deaths. But the Wall Street Journal article from 2004 that she cites also quotes the CDC as saying, big health concerns remain. That's because there's absolutely no question that increased weight causes all sorts of problems. I mean, Ms. Andrew may not buy that, but I think anyone with common sense knows 
We can't slam our frame, our heart, our organs, and expect them to just uh, hum along. I digress. So it turns out our bias against fatness is taught. It's driven into us. It's cognitive bias. Well, she goes on to say, quote, Abundant research demonstrates that obesity is not really a choice and is often a product of systemic inequity. Ah, so if you've got your wokeness bingo card out, I hope you can keep up. She's throwing down all the terms she's learned in college. She cites multiple factors that cause obesity. None of it is by choice. It's not your fault. Let's make that abundantly clear. It's society's fault. She gives the factors, each of which is a link to another article, I guess to bolster her point. Let's see what she's found, shall we? Food insecurity. So if you're afraid you won't have food, or if you don't have food, then then you eat all the food. Uh, okay, that link no longer exists, and this article is from two days ago at the time of this recording. Housing insecurity. Well, I guess the stress, which she cites later coming up here, makes you eat. But the article was just a study about obese homeless people, asking, is that a problem? It doesn't actually make a link between the two. Poverty-induced scarcity mindset. This is kind of the same as food insecurity, actually, but the link has literally nothing to do with poverty anything, or obesity, from what I can see. Medications. Okay, well, yeah, we all know that certain medications can cause weight gain. The next one is diseases, and yes, we all know that some diseases can cause weight gain. Lack of education. Well, there's apparently a link between less education and higher rates of obesity. But per Ms. Andrew, if you educate someone on how not to be fat, wouldn't that be practicing anti-fatness? So that's wrong and evil, right? Catch-22, anybody? Next was mental health issues. Well, the article that was linked spoke of depression. And yeah, I mean, clearly depression can lead to overeating. And then the last one was chronic stress. Okay, yeah, again, this is kind of a known here. So a few of these issues are admittedly difficult to deal with, and maybe meds or disease make it next to impossible to not gain weight, but the reality is putting food in your face is in fact a choice. What she's making is not valid cogent points that prove people are incapable of overcoming the system. She's simply just making excuses. But soldiering on with her premise, she says that we really need to get surgeons better trained out of their cognitive bias. See, because surgeons don't focus on the full range of a patient's health like a primary care physician, rather they only focus on the added time and the added cost and the increased risks, the overall detriment in health and physical condition, which I'd say probably has something to do with why they're in there getting the care of a surgeon in the first place. They just don't have the same worldview, the same empathy that's needed to battle their anti-fatness bias. As she goes on for another seven paragraphs about this, blah de blah de blah She's just awful, I'll be honest. She even admits, though, that, quote, post-surgery, many higher-weight patients will require intensive care, continual follow-up, and long-term treatment adherence. Patients with a higher weight are also 12 times more likely to have a complication requiring extended hospitalization and continued interface with their surgical team. Now, to her credit, I don't see where she's arguing that fat people are just as healthy as anyone else, and it's just hateful that people say otherwise. 
hopefully that idiocy is dying out is that is nearly as unscientific and dangerous and frankly stupid as the idea that you're whatever gender you think you are. So let's just cut some things off of you and give you unnatural hormone treatments, even regardless of your age. The reality is the fatter you are, the more unhealthy you either are or soon will be. As someone that battles weight because I generally hate working out and I generally love eating food, I know how I feel. I know what my blood pressure and cholesterol does. I know how my dumpster fire of a lower back responds. I know how I start huffing and puffing more, how my heart feels different when I gain some weight. And like I said, I'm not egregiously overweight. Unless you live in a world of woke fantasy, you can't deny with any credibility that extra weight and the more you gain, the worse it gets, is uh, bad. So we come to the doctors. I've dealt with surgeons, with surgical staff, with recovery nurses, with primary care physicians, etc. And yes, you can generally group the different specialties by demeanor and bedside manner. And each person has their own attitude, their own personality, you know, like humans do. And surgeons are definitely their own breed. But to be a surgeon, I kind of think you must have a degree of arrogance because you literally are that good at what you do. In my opinion, hey, don't be a jerk. But with the schooling you put in, the money you put in, the training you've done, you've earned the right to be a little stuck up, a little arrogant. But the issue that innocent woke Ms. Andrew is missing is um, honesty. She's asking for the surgical wing to be nice. Okay, it's fine to ask that, but she's not weighing the cost. Sometimes tough love is what the doctor ordered. And this isn't just in the realm of weight. This can be anything in the medical world. If you keep smoking, keep drinking, keep eating that large bowl of popcorn with that much salt and a full stick of butter, chasing it with some sort of chocolate and or ice cream because you can't have that much salt without something sweet, all the while chugging Mountain Dew, you know, for a for completely and totally random example, you're going to die early, if you're lucky, because the alternative to death is a near-death experience that potentially leaves you dramatically debilitated. Maybe the doc needs to give it to you straight. So for us fatties, maybe the best thing to be told is, wow, you sure are fat, you know that's going to kill you, right? Plus, I have to now perform this work on you, and this is way harder, and there's a much larger chance you'll die or have terrible complications, all because you're massively overweight. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound nice, but let me give you an example. Let's say I see a small child playing, and I run like a football player in an open field tackle and just drive myself into him and send us both flying about 10 feet before we hit the ground. Now, you'd think I was some sort of absolute monster, a child abuser, until you see the car fly by where the kid was just playing in the middle of the road. See, sometimes what appears to be brutal, what appears to be mean or savage is actually a good thing. If you've ever watched My 600-Pound Life, Dr. Now doesn't pull any punches. He may be fat-shaming. He may have an anti-fatness bias. But that little 300-year-old man that you can only understand sometimes, which is why they literally put subtitles for his English speaking, he knows more about the deadly effects of being overweight than all of us combined. He's trying to save the lives of people that have chosen to eat their stress, eat their emotions, eat their psychological problems. They don't need nice. They don't need coddling. They need truth, the brutal truth, and they need it now. We see this same type of woke practice in just about everything these days. In the realm of religion, we have more and more churches that refuse to talk about sin or hell or repentance. They remove things that make people feel uncomfortable, you know, like crosses. 
They play secular music, they swear from the pulpit, they tell stories in great detail while loosely paraphrasing Bible verses, generally grossly out of context, because they want butts in the seats and dollars in the collection boxes, and the way to do that is to not make people feel bad. You can't be honest, you can't be blunt, you can't show tough love, everything must be softened, every message must be crafted perfectly, put through a series of editors to ensure the right words are said in the right way and in the right order, and nothing negative makes its way to the consumer. Keep everything positive, everything upbeat, and the more the message can be made about the congregation, the better. If there's one thing we all love, it's talking about ourselves. Nothing controversial or squidgy, though. Just happy thoughts. But is that what we're called to do? In the exact same way that bedside manner needs to be adjusted and tailored to the situation, and sometimes that means tough conversations and blunt, matter-of-fact language, the Christian faith has some hard truths that can't be sugar-coated. If you're not saved, you're going to hell. The world doesn't like that. Jesus is the only way to heaven. People don't want to accept that. God will not weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds and make a judgment call when you die, and you will not be compared to anyone else. Well, people don't feel that's fair. But just like a doctor looking at me, knowing that if I don't lose some weight, I'm going to have a bunch of health problems, I'll be on an increasing regimen of meds, I'll become more and more sick, I'll feel worse and worse, and then I'll die. But softening it, being more concerned about my feelings than he is about telling me the truth, and thus sentencing me to that death, pastors, churches, and Christians increasingly are looking at the unsaved and telling them that they'll be fine. Ah, you're a good person. We're all children of God. And they walk away with a false sense of security and a death sentence of eternal torment, unless someone who cares enough to tell them the truth comes along. Let me wrap this up with this. There are some that believe that you do something to share the gospel with every human you come in contact with. People like Ray Comfort, for instance, will talk to everybody. I don't personally believe that's everyone's calling. I don't believe that that's to be done in every situation, and I don't believe that's a command given to us. We're told to make disciples of all nations. Yeah, okay. And we're told to always be ready to give an answer. Yes, agreed. I'm a firm believer that if the opportunity presents itself at work, I'll be ready. But I'm not being paid to preach at my job. I'm being paid to do something about, um, well, it has to do with the uh, something engineering. Look, whether I know what I'm supposed to be doing at my job isn't what we're talking about here. Seriously, though, I believe in a sovereign God. I believe that God gives us certain situations to share the gospel, but that's not necessarily every situation. I also believe that we likely miss more of those situations than we take advantage of. But God doesn't hang salvation of an individual on the fickleness of a single human. If we miss it, don't worry. God's got this. So be aware. Be ready. Be kind, but be honest. Even when being honest means hard truths. Nobody wins by watering down the truth to the point that the truth is lost and all you have left is the water. Can we all agree that it's nice to live in a world where there is literally nothing substantial to worry about? No wars or rumors of wars, no economic issues, no societal issues, no conflicts of any kind. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. 
Now, you're likely thinking I may be taking the pot, but despite what my eyes show me and my ears tell me, I can't think of any other reason why this story would exist unless every other problem in the world has been solved. From originally the San Francisco Chronicle, but as is my custom, I'm not paying for their online tripe. So from People.com headline, San Francisco School District removes the word chief from job titles due to concerns. So the spokesperson for the San Francisco Unified School District, the SFUSD, Gentle Blythe, who looks like she might be a little on the hippie side but overall doesn't look insane, said that since some of the Native American members of the community had some concerns over the term, the leadership team decided to nix it. But don't worry, removing that word doesn't diminish the positions that are held. I mean, did anyone think that? You're not the chief financial officer anymore, now you're just a big nothing of a financial officer, and you'll be getting a 50% pay cut because of it. I mean, my title has changed so many times, it's just all words. I'm a reliability engineer. You can diddle around with that all you want, but that's what I am. So, what are they going to call these people now? Well, no idea. Eh, They just knew they had to get rid of that offensive C word as quickly as possible. The details, eh, they'll work those out later. The People article then jumps to the Washington Redskins football team because... What else can you say about the SFUSD? I mean, they're eliminating what is literally not a Native American word from their job titles. That's that's all there is. As for the Washington Redskins changing their name to the Washington football team, I mean, again, one of the dumbest things ever, in my opinion. What we have is nothing more than a squeaky wheel, a a cart leading the horse, an arrow shooting a bow, milk before the cereal, Brush teeth and then a glass of orange juice. I don't know. I got to stop. I'm running out of stupid analogies. My point is, with the elimination of chief, the changing of team names, the removal of statues, the changing of flags, the canceling of words, the cries of cultural appropriation, and all the other insanity we're dealing with, this comes down to a tiny minority of loud, mostly whiny people. These are literally the flakiest of the snowflakes that can't handle words. These are the people that can't have Latinos, and Latinas, they want Latinx, even though the polls say that nobody wants that word. These are the people that change woman to woman. I don't even know what that's supposed to be. I'm, I'm assuming it's to eliminate man from that word. These are the fools that end prayers with a man and a woman, or who pray to some imaginary transgender or agender almighty they of a god. Just like the transgender community is less than 1% of the American population, but they're loud and they're arrogant and they're whiny and they're getting the attention they want, that they clearly wanted, which is why they're into the dress up in the first place. And I say that knowing that there are some very few that legitimately struggle with gender dysphoria. These are typically not who you see making a scene screaming that they need special rights. Well, just like that contingent is less than 1%, that's most of these contingents. They're a very tiny minority. Let's hop off that rabbit trail and delve quickly into the uh, idiocy of removing chief 
because a few Indians, oh no, I didn't just say that, uh, think that it's their word. The reality is they're about 400 years too late. The word itself actually originates back to the 1300s and originates in France. It simply means head or leader, captain, the most important figure of whatever. It has nothing to do with Indians, indigenous people, Native Americans, the Red Man, Indians, or any other possible term for Native Americans. As does much of our language, if you go farther back, it actually originates in Latin, capum, which of course branches out to all the Romance languages. So for instance, the Italian word capo originates from capum. So I guess to be fair to our Indian brethren, we need to call that little clippy thing on the neck of a guitar something else also. So I guess rather than playing with your guitar capoed in D-flat, to be non-offensive, let's say play this song, guitar neck clippy thinged in the key of D-flat instead. In fact, when you start looking at the etymology of the word capum, there would be a couple dozen words that we should change. And for that matter, bringing it closer to the massive injustice at hand, do we need to change the word handkerchief or kerchief? What about mischief? Can we say chiefly anymore? Maybe we need to wait to see what the SFUSD tells us we can use. What about our president? Can he be commander-in-chief? I mean, I think I speak for most Americans, especially at this point, native or otherwise, in saying that we do not want this current president to be the commander-in-chief right now. We've had enough examples with just Afghanistan and this Ukraine debacle to know he doesn't need to be making military decisions. But to the point, we can't have a president that's offending a small minority of a specific demographic, can we? Not if you're a loony leftist, we can't. Now look, as Christians, we do not want to intentionally offend people. And yes, I know my sense of humor, as good or as poor as it might be, could potentially offend people. But I think offense must have intent. One of the best pearls of human wisdom I've heard about offending someone came from the podcast of a biblical counselor, Rick Thomas. The link to his site is in the notes. If you want solid biblical advice on a wide range of topics, check him out. Fantastic. But he said something that should be obvious. It takes two people to be offended. It takes one person to do the thing that could be considered offensive and another person to take that thing in an offensive manner. Personally, I just don't really get offended very often. I'd like to say I never do, but that would be a lie. It happens, but it either takes something really egregious from whoever, or it takes something fairly big from someone I hold in higher regard. I also believe that intent has everything to do with offense. I may say or do something that offends you, but my preference would be for you to bring it to me, tell me what and why, and allow me the opportunity to argue my case, which will generally come down to intent. Moving into the Bible, Proverbs 17.9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Even if my intent is pure, but you come to me and tell me that this thing offended you, in nearly every case I'm going to strive to not do that thing that way a second time. But at the same time, Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So again, 
This just backs up what Rick Thomas says. We should strive to not be offended. Slow to anger. I'd wedge in there something about assuming the best. That would be the good sense part. And overlooking something that either could be taken as offensive, but upon thinking about it probably wasn't intended that way, or it's just so minor it doesn't matter. Now, when you combine those two verses, the advice we see, we have excellent advice, excellent wisdom that's given to us. Each of us personally strives to not be offended. We also strive to not offend. And if someone else that is also striving to not be offended comes to us with an accusation of offense, we take it seriously and we do what we can to not offend in that manner again while the offended person with an open mind allows us to plead our case because they want to be wrong about being offended. Think about that for a minute. You may need to replay that. How amazing would that be? Think about all of the offense being taken these days. Look at the mess that our country is in. Most of it, I could argue, is based on people being offended. That's literally what the term snowflake means. It's a person that's very, very easily offended. So when looking at this chief thing, should the Native Americans be offended? No, they seriously shouldn't be, as the word is not being used in an offensive manner. It's being used correctly. It's not a derogatory term. In reality, it's not even their word, and so many other words are directly connected to the etymology of the word, but nobody's clamoring to rid our vernacular of those. So they should strive to not be offended. It would be good sense. And it would be to their glory. And again, in nearly every case, and I'll make the logical assumption that this case is no different, it's a very small minority that's making the noise, which should also point to the reality that this is not actually an offensive thing. But knowing that it's apparently offending a contingent of people, should we change it? Well, I'd say we can. But again, there's no ill intent, there's no incorrect usage, there's no derogatory nature. In fact, if we just allow the assumption that chief is a Native American word, isn't it to their credit that we have taken that word and applied it to the top of the top of specific fields? I know we can use it in a more derogatory manner like, way to go, chief, but that use is non-typical. In nearly all cases, that word is being used for someone that is considered the best of the best. That's not offensive. That's an honor. In my opinion, knowing that we're not going to change the English language, this is only the SFUSD and a few other very specific locations around the country that have either done this already or will soon follow suit. They can do it if they want, but no, we don't need to remove this word from the American vocabulary and cede it to a certain demographic because a few squeaky wheels are squealing. Okay, bigger picture. Let's say you're someone that gets offended easily. How do you stop? How can you let things go? Evaluate things more realistically. Assume the best. Well, I'm not a counselor, so take this with a grain of salt. But to me, to be offended, we must be focused on self. If we want to avoid being offended, we need to take the focus off of ourself and place it where it should be focused, on God. Jesus was offended greatly while on earth, in many ways, with the pinnacle being his death on the cross. 
We sin in many ways all day long against a perfectly holy God. That is literally offending him and bringing offense to his name. And yet God sent his son, and Jesus willingly gave his life to erase the offenses, called sin, we constantly commit against him. And more than that, he not only offers to erase the offense, God allows us the opportunity to be his child, to be co-heirs with his son. If we repent of our offenses, our sins, and believe in his son and who Jesus is and what Jesus did, we can be God's child. If God went to that extreme for us, maybe we can strive to focus on God and work to assume the best and work to not be offended and also work to not offend. If I were to ask you, which, I mean, I guess I kind of am here, is it easier to ask for forgiveness or to forgive, what would you say? Personally, I think in most cases, in most scenarios, it's probably easier to forgive as most offenses aren't terribly large and forgiving someone is the noble thing to do. Asking forgiveness is admitting you've wronged someone, and no matter what that something is, it can be difficult to say, eh, I'm sorry, I'm asking for your forgiveness. But what if the offense is great? What if it's a large sum of money that was defrauded you? What if it was an egregious piece of gossip told about you? What if it's something traumatic like abuse, unfaithfulness, a major criminal act against you or a family member? The concept of forgiving gets more and more difficult. Wouldn't you agree? I found a website with a number of proverbs regarding forgiveness, and some are good, like forgive and forget, or who forgives wins, but there are some unique or kind of funny ones as well. A Japanese proverb says, forgiving the unrepentant is like drawing pictures on water. A Brazilian proverb says, where blood has been shed, the tree of forgiveness cannot grow. A Georgian proverb says, if you forgive the fox for stealing your chickens, he will take your sheep. A Chinese proverb says, women and fools never forgive. Okay, okay, don't, no hate mail, just a joke. A traditional proverb says, the noblest vengeance is to forgive. An Irish proverb says, the Irish forgive their great men when they are safely buried. I found an article that's apparently a follow-up article from a licensed clinical professional counselor, LCPC, found on psychologytoday.com, headline, Five Reasons Why Trauma Survivors Shouldn't Forgive. Now, as a Christian, this headline caught my eye. More on that in a moment. So apparently this is an article written after a number of messages were received concerning her previous article entitled, Why Forgiveness Isn't Required in Trauma Recovery. Apparently, some messages were from those that felt a sense of relief that they did not have to forgive, while others decried the advice, saying that forgiveness was vital to their healing process. Now, the author actually qualifies her opinion with, quote, As a trauma psychotherapist, I've witnessed the deleterious impact that compulsory forgiveness can have on a trauma survivor's healing process. When trauma survivors are not willing or ready to forgive, forgiveness can be psychologically and physically harmful, even life-threatening. Now, boiled down, forced forgiveness can be bad. Okay, well, I'd have a hard time arguing with that. In fact, I believe a forced apology is pointless, really. As anything forced like that, it, it just isn't real. It's just words. It's, it's not actually forgiveness at all. 
Briefly, her five reasons are as follows. First, you're not safe. Her point is that if you're being forced to forgive your abuser while still in that abusive relationship, it can cause the abused to feel a false sense of closure and the abuser a real sense of power. In other words, don't pretend that just because you tell someone you forgive them that that person has changed. Second, your relationship needs natural consequences. A natural consequence is nothing more than a consequence for an action. She takes us from child psychology. If you're mean to your friend, your friend may stop being your friend. A natural consequence for your actions. Her point in this one is that sometimes the act of forgiveness may shortcut the process and allow someone to skirt around a natural consequence for the action they took. Third, you need to focus on emotional processing. The argument here is that this is more of a shortcut to the victim's processing and healing. She argues that the process for healing is usually long, sometimes painful, and by jumping straight to forgiveness, it may destroy the process that you're supposed to go through, so proper healing may not occur. Fourth, your needs take priority. She argues here that you may need the energy to ensure your protection, navigate medical, psychological, physical, and emotional healing, etc. The act of forgiveness may take more energy than you have left to spare at the moment. And then fifth, you don't want to forgive. This is exactly how it sounds. Sometimes, for whatever reason, you're not ready to or you're never going to forgive someone for the trauma they inflicted on your life. Your reason doesn't matter. And we all just need to respect that choice. So like I said, her base point was that if you're not ready to forgive, you shouldn't be forced to forgive. I can't disagree with that point. She also makes the point that forgiveness needs to be a natural part of the overall process at the right time. I also agree with that. What she's absolutely missed in this article, and what I would wager she misses in her counseling of her patients, or else I would think she'd make at least some mention of it here, is the cruciality of eventual forgiveness and the reason why. She also doesn't make mention of it here, but it may be implied by some of her points that forgiveness is an action independent of what anyone else does or doesn't do. In other words, it makes no difference regarding your granting forgiveness as to if the person you're forgiving has asked for it or not. And this is a very real thing, as an abuser may never admit to his or her wrongs and ask for forgiveness. Or, or may die before anything is ever resolved. And that's where I'd like to go with this. Unfortunately, secular psychology and Christian counseling, for the most part, are both based off of Freudian principles. So, very secular. In the case of Christian counseling, they adopt the secular core and try to paint Christianity on top of it. I won't say it can't work, but from personal experience, eh, I wouldn't count on it. Another alternative is biblical counseling. This form of counseling is one that starts with the foundation that the Bible is true, accurate, and contains all we need to understand life and deal with issues both big and small that might arise. Personally, I think this is a much better approach. Start with the true foundation from God rather than a created foundation by secular, sinful, and in the case of Freud, God-ignoring and hating and denying man. So in the next few minutes, let's try to finish the thought that this counselor left incomplete. Starting in the Gospels with the words of Jesus, we read in what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now this is Jesus teaching us how to pray and giving us the key sections of the prayer, forgiveness being one of those sections. 
After the prayer, Jesus goes on to elaborate on the forgiveness aspect. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this is not speaking of forgiveness from a salvific viewpoint. This is forgiveness of those that are saved on a daily basis. This is the sanctification, the maintenance of your salvation, for lack of a better term, the maintenance of your relationship with God. So this act of forgiving others is supposed to be a daily thing, at a minimum, as is asking for forgiveness of the sins you've committed against God for that day. Jesus goes on from there to tell the parable of the servant that owed a debt he could never pay in any amount of lifetimes to his master, and after pleading and begging the master through no compulsion, grants the servant not just more time to pay, not just a reduction in terms, but full pardon and forgiveness of the entire debt. Now, after leaving, the servant went and found a fellow servant that owed him a substantial amount. Note, it doesn't say he came across or the fellow servant sought him out or it was just by chance. It says when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Now, this servant likewise begged for more time, but the first servant threw him in prison until he paid his debts. The master, having found this out, brought this first servant before him again. He unforgave the debt and threw him in prison as well. Now, Jesus sums this up with, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. Not just it's a, uh, you know, it's fine, and then hold onto the bitterness, not just, eh, forgive you, but still hold unforgiveness in your heart. And remember, God cannot be conned like the master was in the story. The master, in good faith, did a good thing, expecting the best from a servant. God knows our hearts. While this servant was being forgiven, he was thinking about his next move, to go get what he was owed. God knows our hearts and our thoughts. We must forgive from our very being, not just on the surface. I think we all know this isn't easy. And the bigger the trauma, the bigger the offense, the harder it is. Now, a little later on, Peter came to Jesus with a very honest question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? What Peter is asking here is a question based on an abusive relationship. I'm not suggesting physical or emotional abuse, but someone who consistently violates you in the same sinful manner. Peter is asking, how many times should we forgive that same offense? Peter knew that the law said you must forgive twice. He knew that the Pharisees said to be righteous, you go above and beyond the law. So they said to forgive three times. Peter, knowing that Jesus was above and beyond the Pharisees, and maybe knowing that seven was the number of perfection, completion, he suggested seven times. Now, that may seem silly to throw a seemingly random number like that on forgiveness, but remember, we have sayings in our time of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. We also have the three strikes and you're out rule. We also say, I've been fooled once, but I won't be fooled again. We currently have a very limited view on adequate forgiveness, ironically, one, two, or three times. But Jesus moves straight past two or three, or seven, and says not seven, but 77 times in some translations, 70 times seven in other translations. Either way, the point was that you're to forgive more times than you can keep track of. As the debt the servant owed the master was inconceivable, so too are the number of times we are to forgive. I want you to notice that just as Jesus did not put a boundary on how many times to forgive, he also didn't limit what should be forgiven. 
He didn't say to forgive unless you were abused, unless you were assaulted, unless you had a large amount of money stolen from you, and unless your child destroyed your life, unless your boss made you miserable, unless it was your classic car the other guy smashed up, unless someone you love was murdered. Need I go on? There were and are no boundaries on what we are to forgive. I also want you to notice that in the story of the master and the servant, the servant did not actually ask for the debt to be removed. He just asked for more time. The master, who is the victim in the story, chose to forgive the debt regardless of what the servant, who is the criminal or abuser in the story, regardless of what he requested. Jesus himself, as Hebrews tells us, is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And make no mistake, not granting forgiveness is a temptation that can lead to sin. He displayed what I will call part one of ultimate forgiveness with his death on the cross. Having already been arrested, beaten with fists, slapped with hands, spit upon, mocked, had the crown of thorns jammed onto his head, sleep-deprived, dehydrated, weak from blood loss, having his feet and hands nailed to the cross, then the cross dropped into the hole, every breath painful from how the body had to be manipulated just to breathe, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This coming from a man that was on that cross in our place, in your place, in my place, having done nothing wrong, nothing in the eyes of man. Remember, they had to lie and twist his words to even get some sort of a conviction, and even then they had to demand that he was killed. There were no charges against him personally. And even more importantly, he had done nothing wrong in the eyes of the law, God's law, not man's law. He was perfect in every respect, and yet he submitted himself to this torturous death by his own people, both from a viewpoint of his lineage, his ethnicity, and also as being God by his very own chosen people. No greater trauma could ever be done to any one of us, no matter how egregious, and yet Jesus forgave. Again, this is not salvific forgiveness. This is human level. Those people have wronged me. They haven't asked for forgiveness. In fact, the offenses are still continuing, but I'll forgive them anyway. That level of forgiveness. Now, I call this part one of ultimate forgiveness. This is the ultimate expression of human, man-based forgiveness. None of us will ever experience the level of offense or trauma Jesus experienced as fully man. But although this is the ultimate level of man-based forgiveness, this is the penultimate level of forgiveness, the next to greatest level of forgiveness. The ultimate level of forgiveness was made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, allowing God the Father to grant forgiveness to those that would repent of their sins, repent meaning ask for true forgiveness from the heart, and turning, striving to turn, yearning to turn from the sinful human nature, and then believing on Jesus in all aspects of his life, his death, his resurrection, his statements, his claims, and placing our faith in him and on him because we know and believe who he is. First John tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the ultimate forgiveness, a forgiving of our sins against God. We may think that's a small thing, you know, I've never done anything really that bad. It would be easy for God to just wipe that away. The problem is that God is a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just God. To just dismiss crimes against him and his law without a penalty being paid would be unjust. God is not capable of being unjust. 
And this is regardless of the size of offense you may have offended with. The crime, no matter how small we see it, being committed against a perfect God is a huge crime. No matter that size, because of who we've sinned against, it would take us an eternity of suffering under his punishment, his wrath, to pay for what we see as something petty. King David, after having lusted after Bathsheba, taking her as his own, having sex with her, impregnating her, and then tried to lie to cover it up, then murder her husband Uriah to cover it up, was confronted by Nathan, and then he admitted his wrong. And how many people did David sin against in this scenario? And yet in Psalm 51, the lament that David wrote about this entire scandal, David writes, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, was God the only one that David sinned against? Well, I mean, no, not, not at all. But, but as God is God and everyone else in this equation is human, when viewing this from that perspective, the ultimate eternal punishment-worthy sin that David committed was against God alone, and that eclipses everything else to triviality. And our sins, each and every one of them, just as egregious and damning as anything that David did, yet salvation, forgiveness by God, can be granted to us because Jesus, who is God, endured the cross, despising the shame, took our penalty in our place to be able to grant forgiveness to us. So what this counselor is missing is the fact that we must eventually forgive from the heart. To not do so is to sin against God yet again. But the only way to do this, and the greater the offense, the harder it gets, but the only way to do this is for us first to come to salvation through Christ. So what she's missing is likely her own salvation. For the unsaved, for the lost, this counselor is giving typical human-based logical advice. But this is nothing more than the blind leading the blind, the lost leading the lost. From a human standpoint, there is no reason to forgive. It's all about you. If you feel you should forgive, great. If you don't, that's fine too. From a Christian standpoint, we are commanded to forgive. We are shown how to forgive. We have been granted the ultimate forgiveness. We are warned that there are consequences to not forgiving. Forgiving is not a question of if, it's a matter of when. Although I personally have had some larger incidents in my life that I have had to work through to come to a point of forgiveness on, I've never had anything traumatic occur that I've had to forgive. I'm not going to say that if you're a Christian, forgiveness of those that have hurt you will come immediately. That's where a great biblical counselor can come in to help you deal with the trauma and heal from that trauma. And at the right time, in the right way, forgiveness from the heart, regardless of the offense, regardless of the offender, simply because Christ commanded us to and demonstrated it for us, forgiveness will be part of that healing process. But it will be part of it. It must be part of it. This psychiatrist's dismissal of forgiveness as optional is counter to what we know to be true as humans, and as such will ultimately do more harm than good to the victim. But without firm footing on true truth, she has nowhere to go. As Christians, we forgive because we're commanded to. We forgive because we were given the ultimate example of how to. We forgive because we have been forgiven infinitely more than we could ever be asked to forgive. So, let me ask you, and let me ask myself, what do you need to ask forgiveness for? And who do you need to forgive? And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. 
Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.